Hello and welcome to Hull Library's podcast. I'm Katie. And I'm Dan. In this episode, we had a conversation with musical super pairing Frankie and Pete, who together are Mambo Jambo. They describe themselves as an acoustic roots duo and take inspiration from lots of different musical genres, including folk, Latin, blues, jazz, and lots more besides. After this, you can hear us chatting to our colleague Ellen about literature festivals and her all-time favourite reads. But first up, we talk to the Mambo Jambo guys about the wide range of musical styles they like to explore, favourite memories from some of the exotic places they've gigged in abroad, audience differences around the world, plus latest albums and future live shows. You can find out more over at their website, mambojambo.co.uk, including details of upcoming gigs and more on their latest albums, Groove Fruit and Happy Feet. So sit down and settle back or set out to stride about whilst you enjoy our chat with Frankie and Pete from Mambo Jambo. A lot of it comes from traditional places, traditional kinds of stuff uh, around the world, from from this country, from Europe, from Africa, from Latin America, North America, including, you know, bluegrass. It's just we we try not to set ourselves limitations, limitations on what we play, what we do. And what it kind of encompasses like lots of styles, because because we do we call ourselves like multi-instrumentalists. So we, as well as doing bluegrass and uh, folk and places from music from different places, we also do some jazzy stuff. Basically, it's because we've got loads of instruments. That's the real reason why. So we've got um, Pete's on guitar and banjo and ukulele and a Cuban guitar and accordion. And I'm playing sax, flute, clarinet, guitar, percussion, and we both sing and I play steel pan as well. So that's why we're kind of a big mix of... That's that's a lot going on even in yes, just that sentence there. Um, do, do you find that instruments are a little bit addictive? Kind of when you've got one, you sort of want to get another one and just... I think we've just about reached saturation now. We've, we're very, very choosy about taking anything else on. Uh, partly because it's not a particularly big house <laughs> that we live in. So we can't fill all the rooms up with instruments. Nice if you could, though, wouldn't it? It'd be, it'd be <laughs> lovely. And also, you know, shifting things from, from gig to gig. Yeah, we've, I think we've just about found our limitations now. Things that we pick up now are going to be small, things like penny whistles and that kind of thing. So how about did you, did you get started with uh, the whole mambo-jambo experience? Well, we, uh, we met through music and we're, we're musical partners and we're partners Back back in the early days, we we um, we got excited about playing lots of different tunes together, and we kind of did a bit playing live, um, and then uh, at some point it became obvious that this is what we really wanted to do. So we kind of steered ourselves towards doing it full time. As we say, we've been full time professionals for twenty years now. Not not that it's been easy, and it wasn't easy, you know, to start off with, but. Uh, You've got to kind of um, make a lot of contacts and uh, music's about sharing, but you have to sort of let people know that you exist first. I think when you start out, you kind of need a spark. Everybody enjoys music to some extent, but I think we've both had someone down the line, maybe a teacher at school or somebody who's just 
inspired us where we've kind of been able to look at it and think, gosh, we really love doing this. And we really, really want to take it further. And some people, you know, they, they delve into music as a hobby, but I think at some point we just got so enthused that we just thought, let's just carry on doing this and see where it takes us. And who, who was that spark for both of you, if you, if you don't mind me asking? Well, the, the, there was a teacher who turned up at our school and we had, we, we had a fairly limited uh, music teaching thing. And, and this teacher turned up, he put a notice up on the school notice board saying, anyone who can blow down anything, bang on anything, come along to a jazz band audition. And all these characters just crawled out of the woodwork and said, I, I, I can play music. And so were you already a musician before that or was that kind of your first experience of really doing I, anything? I'd just muck around with guitar in my bedroom. Uh, both my brothers played music. There was a bit of music in the family. Uh, my dad played classical violin, which I really didn't like because I'd hear him practicing all the time. <laughs> and it's, you know, it gets a bit grating after a while. But when you hear people practicing, you know, it's good to have your own space to make those nasty noises when you start out. Very important, actually, and good neighbors. Yeah, so yeah, we, we, we had music and we were motivated to the point where we'd think, yeah, music's a really good thing to do. There's nothing wrong with music. And what about you, Frankie? How did you get, what's your journey into music from a, from a young age? Well, I had music in the family as well. My mum was an actor and sang. So I did a little bit of guitar, I played guitar when I was young. And then I wanted to start exploring. I think I was 18 when I started the saxophone. But before long, I was already gigging I was already doing gigs so I think I think that's enthusiasm for you I just wanted to be out there sharing it you know I think a lot of people kind of think that you know if you didn't start playing an instrument when you were like four that it's kind of it's it's too late and that thing's passed and you've kind of got off the piano lessons from from a really young kid and that that idea still persists but that's not true at all is it it's not true no and I think um it happens a bit with with art lots of things people might say, oh, I can't do that. Or they might say, oh, someone told me early on that I can't do that. And actually, it's just about having a go. It's really just about having a go. And then you can get excited. You don't have to be amazing. You don't have to, you know, just to enjoy a little bit of, of having a go at music is a really great thing. And I don't think there's any age that's a, a right age or a wrong age. <laughs> and I, I would like to add just be supported it's so important there you hear so many kids who say I was told when I was six that I couldn't sing so I can't sing and it's just not true it's I get, it's so disappointing to to hear people getting put off at a, a very young age yeah there's there's another thing um when I started taking the steel pan out to to our gigs and it's that is pretty enormous in, in your vehicle. So I'd, I'd get it out in a, we used to do a lot of village hall gigs all around the country as one of the things we did. And I'd, I'd get this very large steel drum or steel pan out. And I'd say to the people that were sort of helping get us into the venue or, or even, no, I'd even say to the audience, um, if anybody wants to come up and have a go and if, and if some people would approach and then they'd kind of stand there and say, but I'm not musical. I can't play music. I can't do it. And I'd just give them the sticks and say, you can't go wrong. And then they'd have a little tinkle and then you could see them just getting really, really into it. 
you know, because they knew at that point there was like, no one's going to judge you, just have a go. Ooh, ooh, they were saying, this is fun. <laughs> I think we really lose the um, the sense of play as adults. It's something that kind of comes out of us for some reason. And I always think it's <laughs> interesting and amusing that you play an instrument, you know, you literally, you play it. It's something that you you have a play at, even though that can be quite a serious thing and a serious learned skill. There's that element of the duality of that word and kind of having fun and messing around with it. It's interesting you should say that because a lot of our concerts, we find that the people who really break the ice and get, get the audience going are the little kids who just react very spontaneously to the music and start skipping around or dancing and and having fun. And all of a sudden, it almost gives the adults, feels like it gives the adults permission to enjoy it and get into it. And it's true, as, as adults, I think a lot of people become more reticent about expressing that sense of fun, which we've all got. Yeah, we, uh, we do also meet a lot of very playful adults that are <laughs> at our gigs. <laughs> yeah. Which is good. I really liked the thing you said as well about um, having the space to make the bad noises. And I think that's what puts a lot of people off, like you say, not just music, but across a lot of arts is making them mistakes early on. And especially with an instrument, because you've, you've, you've going to have to go through a period of making a lot of the bad noises and not, kind of not being afraid of that. Yeah, I, I wouldn't, you see, I wouldn't call them bad noises. They're noises. <laughs> they're, 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 they're necessary noises. It's like... There's um, no good or bad, really, is you there? You know, really? someone like a, a jazz saxophonist who has to learn all these scales and do all this stuff very repetitively. Um, they, their practice they call woodshedding for obvious reasons. Get them out in their backyard where they're not disturbing anyone. Yeah, woodshedding. It's good if you've got a woodshed. But also you you just learn so much from mistakes when you you think, especially with improvising, you think you're going to set out on one path and you just end up going somewhere totally different and, and you can say, oh, I've got to try and do that again. <laughs> so if we go kind of like right back then, so you've been going for about kind of 20 years professionally. Um, you talked a little bit about that kind of decision to kind of try it professionally and really go for it and how that's kind of difficult so I wonder if you could talk a little more about that that sort of journey and what that was what was like for you it's you've got to have sticking power because I mean difficult yeah really difficult times when you've got no income no security all that kind of stuff but at the same time you know you play for someone and occasionally that means that someone else that was there will book you so gradually things get a bit easier although having said that I mean you know up until last year I'd spend an awful lot of time on the phone or emailing people because it's not often that that you know that they ring you you have to you have to be very very proactive and that was a huge learning curve at the beginning because you kind of think oh I'm here you know there'll be loads of opportunities it doesn't really work like that you've got to be prepared to put lots of time in and make a lot of effort and then learn an awful lot of other stuff which isn't just playing music you know stuff like I don't know getting websites together and and contacting people and having all the right sort of publicity and um, finding out who's running what venue and all that kind of stuff. I guess these days it's well not always these days for, for a long time but especially 
now you have to be a bit of a cottage industry, I suppose, and do a little bit of kind of everything, like you say, kind of looking after your own website and almost being your own manager and, and promotion, unless you're in the fortunate position to have a lot of money behind you. And I think maybe that's something people don't realize that it's really useful to have lots of different kind of strings to your bow. Definitely. I think you need to, yes, you're right. You need to have a lot, a lot of, uh, things that you you're good at or that you learn how to to do so in terms of the kind of folk music world music roots music scene i'm i'm not too up on the the exact terminology but whatever you'd like to call it is that getting involved in that world and kind of making your way in it is that substantially different to other kind of genres of music do you think or is it all the same kind of stuff are there different opportunities available uh, well, I mean, this is one of the, the reasons we're sort of we don't like to pin ourselves down to one genre because we do an awful lot of we do bits of lots of them within each little field. You've got different people that, that put on different kind. You know, you've got jazz festivals, folk festivals, world music festivals. We we played all three of those types, and they're they're like little different worlds with networks of people that know each other. And the, the idea is that I think you have to build up a loyal audience, people who are really looking forward to your next concert or your next album. Uh, loyalty counts for so much in this business. It's not an easy thing to build up. Uh, certainly the folk scene, I think, is, is, is very much, mm. uh, they're a very, very, very loyal crew. And, uh, you know, mm. God bless them. You've got, they've got some great audiences out there. I know from looking at your website and chatting a little bit beforehand, you've you've been to some quite interesting places and been all around um, doing your music. So what are some of the most memorable ones for you? Ooh, well, I think one of the most memorable festivals was when we went to Borneo, Borneo Jazz Festival. Miri International Jazz Festival. So there were bands from all over the world. Um, and that was... That was really quite exciting. It was a, it was a long, it took us, how long did it take us? 28 hours to get there. We were pretty exhausted when we got there. And on the last flight from Kuala Lumpur to Borneo, when we arrived, there'd been a leak in the hold of the aeroplane. So all our instruments were covered in rotten fish oil. Fermented fish oil. <laughs> <laughs> it took about six months to get rid of the horrible smell. Uh, yeah, and just the thing of, um, it's right on the equator. So the sun was right overhead at noon, no shadow. Um, that's, that's the, the Borneo experience was amazing because they did, the festival organizers did take us out to the rainforest, to a national park rainforest where we saw amazing things, you know, wild monkeys, caves full of bats, just an amazing experience. And to be actually paid at the end of it, having done that is quite an amazing thing. Yeah, it felt very privileged. Or I can think of another one, the Shetland Folk Festival. That that was another festival that took hours and hours and hours to get to because Shetland's so far north. Um, and that was brilliant because whenever we weren't playing a gig, there just seemed to be jams absolutely everywhere, like in the coach to go to the gig, on the coach back from the gig. Then you went to like the festival um, kind of hub after all the musicians arrived back at the hub and there was just jams everywhere, including outside the toilets. And I, I was in the jam 
in a lift once, <laughs> once, which was really, it was really funny because they said, come on, we're having a jam in the lift. And I popped in. We went down and the lift doors opened and there was a bagpipe player stood outside because <laughs> he couldn't fit in the lift. <laughs> and he played his little bit and then the doors shut. We went back up, up to the next flight. I remember that being quite a wild festival. And the locals were so desperate after um, months of darkness because it's so dark up there and so far north, that they, they really, really enjoyed themselves. I would say nearly most of the, well, all of the day and pretty much all of the night as well. They, they were up till the next morning, a lot of them. <laughs> we couldn't keep that up as well as they could. For music, it, it is an amazing place. I, I would recommend any musician to go up there because I think it is the most musical part of the British Isles. They're crazy for music. They're mad for it. There are so many violin players especially violin players but lots and lots of other instruments as well and they've really invested in uh teaching music to the children so it's there's so much music up there yeah go to shetland if you get the chance if you love music yeah and havana that was the other place they loved music havana oh yeah just such a, a hub of infectious music that goes right through the whole community I, I say this at gigs, mambo, rumba, cha-cha-cha, salsa, all this wonderful... Reggaeton. Reggaeton. All, all, all comes from Cuba, from Havana. So it was almost like going like a pilgrimage to, to the source of, of, of something there. And because we were musicians and we were, we were studying and gigging with other musicians, we were sort of let into an awful lot of places and things and people that tourists wouldn't get to meet or, or to go to. So we met all our musicians, families and friends. We went to loads of parties. We, we went to loads of gigs. We met all the bands. We were given the opportunity to leap on stage with them. It, it was really, really, it was brilliant. It, this was about 15 years ago. We did get- Twice, we went twice. Help from the, uh, the, Arts, the Arts Council, Council, which was very welcome. And on, on, on the back of this experience, we set up a, a Latin band based in Hull, which ran for about five or six years, I think. And in fact, that was the band that went to Borneo. So do you do audiences differ around the world, do you think? Is, do the reaction to the music differ depending on where you go, or is it kind of the same wherever? It's the same and different. I mean, people are people. Sometimes you get people that are more reticent. Sometimes you get people that are more exuberant. Having said that, in Cuba, the audiences were definitely more lively. And danced. I'd, I'd, I'd go so far as to say that audiences can be completely different in different parts of the world. The way they react to the music, the spontaneity. Um, some parts of the world, it's this country to some extent, just as much in, in Scandinavia, it's very difficult to get audiences up out of their chairs. But uh, we also spent a bit of time in Brazil. Again, that was a, a musical trip. And down there, People, if you weren't up dancing, people were sure it was because there was something wrong with you, like you had a bad leg or a bad ankle or something like that. Yeah, really, really active and want to participate physically in the music, which, which isn't the case in this country. We've tried to bring that kind of spirit back to this country. Um, sometimes it sometimes it really, really works. Sometimes it doesn't. But we don't make a big deal of it anymore because this is this is the way it is in over here. And we, we, we recognise the differences and the cultural differences and uh, some parts of the world, they just really want to let their hair down. 
and some parts of the world that are a bit more reticent about it, you know. So what is, kind of in a related way then, what is Hull like as a city to be kind of based in and what's the, the scene like in Hull versus the kind of rest of the country? It's brilliant. Hull's, Hull's a fantastic place to be based. We love it. And it's a very creative very, place. Very, very great musicians and artists and all sorts of people doing all sorts of things and and that there's there's lots of good energy around and it's it's nice for us to go away and come back we, we feel you know welcome we, we feel supported <laughs> and encouraged in whole yeah which which we we really appreciate and we're, we're looking forward to if well i was just going to quickly say that we're really looking forward to uh, the big malarkey event in, in east park it's it's fantastic. I think we've yeah we've done it a couple of times before. It's a thing of getting getting kids involved in artistic and cultural stuff, and it builds itself as a children's literature festival. But it's so much more than that, isn't it? So we're going to be doing some different things in schools because we love going into schools. And then on the Sunday at the Big Malarkey at East Park, uh, well we've we've got. We've got two new albums out. One of them is actually for children, well, children and fun-loving adults, called Happy Feet. And we're going to be doing some songs from Happy Feet, and we're going to hopefully have a lot of Happy Feet in there (laughs) (laughs) with um, stuff to get involved with, although you don't have to if you're like a reticent type of audience. That's absolutely no problem, but it should be fun. So there's there's almost kind of two, or is it two different things? You tell me of kind of doing, I guess, the more adult music scene and making music for adults versus making music for children, doing children's events. Is it a very different vibe, or is it actually the same thing, really? Well, we do we do lots of things. I mean, we we do gigs, we do children's stuff, we do workshops, we do schools, we do community projects, and there's a lot of overlap. And then there's a lot of things that only happen in one of those areas. Uh, I think that the difference is about how, how you get audiences involved. Kids want, they want, to, they want a bit of fun. They want to, they're very curious about what's going on. Adults, I think they like to hear music that they can relate to. I, I think that's right, isn't it? They uh, tend to like to sit back and gaze into space and feel touched feel the, 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 the truth in the music that's there, feel absorbed by it, feel almost released by it. So, yeah, that's what I'd say. That it's about how you, how you involve the different age groups and you have to treat them very differently. Although, although a lot of adults like a bit of fun with their music. Um, so how, as kind of regular gigging musicians and feeding off a live audience, how have you found lockdown over the past year are you you itching to kind of get back out in front of people yeah we are itching to get out playing music live in front of people I think that's why um we decided that we were gonna just get recording so that we had project we had a project we could write new songs our cds came out in March and it was the end of what's for a lot of people has been a difficult time for some people a dark time but we had these projects of uh, you know we're going to do this song over the next couple of days and then that's finished we're going to do another one and that really kept us motivated plus we wrote some new songs and yeah then- musicians rely on sharing and okay we've done a few online things along the along the way over the course of the year but it's 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 not the same mm. uh 
it's it's great and it's a learning curve and it it's here to stay you know we're going to have to keep being able to work online and find ways to use the online way of working it has been difficult without being able to share it in front of a live audience so we've had to adjust yeah so you've you've been to lots of different places around the world you you say you're very varied in the kind of music you do what would be if you could go anywhere or get involved immerse yourself in any music scene what would be the one that you've not done that 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 you'd love to do i mean one ambition of mine might be to uh do something like go from new orleans down to trinidad taking in you know island hopping because there's each it's almost as if every island has has its own unique musical identity taking carnival as well because uh, we 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 saw a bit of carnival in brazil it's, it's one of the brilliant things that, um, you know, the Afro-Caribbean population have brought to this country. I just think it's such a brilliant thing to put into the pot and stir around in this country. The idea that uh, one or two days a year, people can really get to let their hair down and dance down the street and have a lot of fun. But I'd love to go see that at work in New Orleans, all the way down to Trinidad and the places in between. What an ambition that would be. Wow. Do you think we might manage that one day, Frankie? Let's hope so. Yeah, we'll work at it. Next up, myself and Dan talk to our colleague, Ellen, about the Big Malarkey Children's Literature Festival, which she organises, as well as her childhood and enduring fascination with the magic of fairy tales. Right, so welcome to the Whole Libraries podcast, Ellen. It's very nice to have you here. So you are the director of the Big Malarkey Festival, which is a very fancy job title. Um, it is. It is. What? It's a fancy festival. A fancy festival. So, well, yeah, what, what is the Big Malarkey Festival for people that don't know? Well, the Big Malarkey is a new children's started out as a children's literature festival that was launched in 2017 as part of the Hull City of Culture 2017 celebrations Um, and the vision was to have a kind of outdoor children's festival with a very kind of straw bale and bunting glasto vibe that would be kind of a celebration of everything that the library offers and also something that an invitation to children and families to 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 read for pleasure I think that's the sort of thing that's underneath it all is about encouraging reading for pleasure introducing authors and illustrators and stuff that children might not have come across before lots of bits and pieces of of a different of the different things that libraries libraries have within them so it's quite a task really because libraries the library offer is massive you know it's um it's fiction it's non-fiction it's also lots of creative stuff hands-on opportunities for for workshops and so on so we try and reflect that but it's very informal very playful very celebratory so for people who've who've never been, could you describe what, what the festival's actually like? Because I mean I know me and Katie have been down there. We know know what it's like. Yeah, we've worked it, haven't we? In all the tents and the kind of beautiful chaos. The behind that it the is. scenes sad, but Yeah. Well it's um it's a it's a fence off site um on East Park, which is a beautiful park in itself. So we make a lovely site on there and we have a big top and then we have lots of smaller tents. And some of those uh, have library staff 
doing their thing in it, like the Makerspace, which is our technology and craft and sort of making lab. And we have our craft tent, Make It, Take It. And then we have a writing tent for for writers, for, for workshops. Uh, we have a doodle tent, which is just dedicated to drawing. Big Top has all different kinds of names coming along. So there might be a cartoonist, there might be a writer, there might be uh, some music, some live music. So it's a real old mixture. And it, it's really all to do with with storytelling, with discovery, with meeting meeting artists, meeting musicians, meeting authors and illustrators and having that live experience, really. So, yeah, it's um, there's lots going on. And it does look like beautiful chaos um, when you walk in. But in fact, it's all perfectly organised. It is, Alan. Of course. I think... I- <laughs> I was speaking from the point of view as a staff member yeah. who's worked there, and it can be a feel like a frantic weekend, but it's it's the ducks paddling yeah. kind of it analogy, is, isn't it? It is, yeah. it is so much fun. I think one thing that impressed me most when I first went down um, was how much it actually feels like a festival. And obviously when the sun, sun is shining, that really helps to kind of bring that alive. But it's it's not just some tents where activities are happening in a field. There's there's kind of food stalls and there's, you know, kind of theatre events going on and kind of in around the grounds. So it really feels like a, a kind of party festival atmosphere, which I think is one of the things that's special about it and sets it apart from maybe other things that are just activities that take place it really feels like a festival yeah, there's music um, isn't there and actors going around doing little workshops just free around the area and the kids are running around and picnics and it's lovely so i'm not going to ask you to pick your favorite malarkey moment because that's the obvious question and that that's too hard that's like picking your favorite <laughs> child or something i would imagine what i'm going to do instead is ask you to pick your top three favorite malarkey moments <laughs> oh gosh I think Julian Clary, when he came with David Roberts uh, in the second year, it was, I think, or maybe the first year even, he came with Julian Roberts and they were um, presenting their his really funny book, The Bowls. And he played, um, the children played, he played head, head, body and legs, you know, the, the paper game. So the children called out the kind of things they had to draw. And, and it was just... So funny because he's he's well he's brilliant he's a brilliant comedian and he yeah. is able to speak on two levels one to the parents and to the children yeah. he has this kind of double entendre which is utterly hilarious um, so he was really good really enjoyed that I, I enjoyed Grim and Co Apothecary who are a uh, a company from Rotherham and they do wonderful little sessions all around creative writing. Really, really imaginative, and I think I think it was your daughter, Katie. That yeah, um, I was just going to say. <laughs> uh, you you go you go into their little booth and you say, um, they say, who would you like to write a letter to? You can choose a historic personage to write a letter to, and she wrote a letter to Queen Victoria, and you so you write your letter, and then you post it in the post box, and then half an hour later you go back to the. The, to the booth and, and you get a letter back you get a reply yeah, she's from queen victoria <laughs> it's brilliant and of course what that does is she's written a letter so it's all it's all about writing creative writing and, and practicing your writing and enjoying writing she doesn't you know she doesn't know all that she's just written the letter for, for, for fun it makes writing fun essentially that that's what it's all about it's really very well sort of thought through 
And I think one of my favourite moments was in the um, backstage tent in the Big Malarkey was full of volunteers from Grimm & Co writing letters furiously, writing replies for the children <laughs> from yeah. all sorts of weird and wonderful people. No, and I, I, I like the, um, I have to confess, I really like the uh, EYMS brass band as well. We, we finished with them one year in the Big Top and they were brilliant. They kind of blew the roof Fantastic. off, really. Fantastic, yeah. And, uh, and the kids went bananas. Um, just that, that sound is so powerful, it goes right through you. So there'd be lots of really, I mean, lots of really lovely moments. So I believe you've picked a few books for us, Ellen, that you wanted to talk about, books that meant something to you when you were younger. Yeah, I just thought it'd be interesting to think about the things that that you read as a child or that I read as a child, because I think that that, that really shapes you as you grow as you grow older the things you come across the things you're presented with and again you know that relates back to the big malarkey is giving presenting kids inviting kids to to read different kinds of stuff um but uh, no i mean i was i was reflecting on this before before our, our meeting today and thinking actually i grew up massively on fairy tales and i carried on reading them well into my teens you know, that was really what, what I enjoyed. And I think I was lucky because we had, my mum used to buy the, um, when she was little with her pocket money, she used to buy the Andrew Lang coloured fairy books, the Violet fairy book and the Red fairy book and the Blue fairy book. So we got quite a collection of these very, very tatty, but beautiful books, um, which are collections of fairy tales from all over the world. Um, and they are just an endless pleasure. Got brilliant illustrations by a man called H.J. Ford. Um, some are colour plates and some are black and white. Um, beautifully drawn. And I just used to pour over these and pour over these and kind of be carried away by the by the the beauty and the and the and the fear and the horror and the excitement and the you know the, the good and evil tussling. I think what I liked about it was a sort of transformation of everyday everyday life that you get in fairy tales. So a lot of things about them are very familiar, like, you know, it's about food, it's about bread, it's about threads, it's about knitting, it's about flowers and animals and houses and broomsticks and cloaks and so on. So, but, but things are transformed. Um, so... It's different from myths and legends, which I, I really enjoyed Greek myths and Norse myths as well, but, but they're kind of epic and kind of far away and the gods just behave really weirdly. Whereas in the fairy tales, it's kind of normal, but pushed to the boundaries. I guess the thing with fairy tales you always feel is all things in that ilk is like, if you just tend down the wrong street or the right street maybe you'd kind of end up in one or if you strayed a little too far into the woods it could maybe it could actually yeah. happen yeah definitely yeah no I think that's that is the the sort of fascination of them really and and for children you know they, they teach you a lot of, they are in a kind of you know they're, they're in a parallel world but it's it's a relatable world um and that is the the big fascination and um, I've been enjoying books about um, about fairy tales, like um, Uses of Enchantment by Bruno Bettelheim, which was sort of says how important fairy tales are for, for children to learn. 
and uh, a book by uh, called the Women Who Run with the Wolves, and she's a psychologist who uses fairy tales in her therapeutic practice. And the book ends with um, her saying, well, I have patients who say to me, what do I need to do to improve my life? And she says, read more fairy tales. And they say, well, yeah, okay, yeah, I can do that. But is there anything else? Uh, no, no, just read some more fairy tales. So you know, it's, it's, I, I find that very interesting, that, that sort of emphasis on reading stuff that isn't real, that is unreal, that is going to help you with your, your inner life, as well as your you know, just giving you a huge amount of pleasure. Did you have a particular favourite fairy tale from the ones you read as a child, or even one a favourite one now? Well, I really like the one about the two sisters, and one is good and one is bad, and the good one is a sort of... Um, ill-treated by the mother who gives her very little whereas she spoils the other one and the story goes that she goes out into the woods one day of course and meets an old woman and shares her dried crust with her and the woman I can't remember what she gives her she gives her something a rose or something and when she goes home when she speaks gold comes out of her mouth and she's sort of, you know, she's blessed. And the mother is very cross. And she tells her, the other daughter, to go and find this old woman and do the same. And of course, the other, the sister goes out and she she doesn't share her food with the, with the old woman. And when she gets home, her toads jump out of her mouth. And I really like that because I always think about people, when people are a bit rude and nasty, yeah. like toads jumped out of your mouth. <laughs> Could you imagine that coming out of the mouth? I do. That's a person with toads jumping out of their mouth. Because there's loads of them, isn't there? Some are really, really famous and became made. In, you know, Disney obviously did loads, and but there's thousands of fairy tales, isn't there? They were a bit like old folk tales as well. Would you say they kind of fall into that? I was going to say, are these stories that were written or are these kind of like folk oral tradition stuff? Or is it a it's mix a mix, I think. I mean, Andrew Lang, he was a bit like the, the Grimm, I think he was Scottish, and he was like the Grimm brothers, the brothers Grimm who collected them. Uh, and he went around, a lot of them, there's lots of overlaps with the ones that the, the, the brothers Grimm collected. Um, but there's also, there was some famous collectors in France and Italy who were doing the same around this time. I think it was a sort of huge interest in writing stuff down. Um, so his is a collection from, you know, mainly European tales, but but also from from the Far East, from 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 the Middle East as well. There's always a message in them, isn't there? There is. Yeah, there's always a moral, and uh, you know, it all, it all ties up very satisfactorily. And I think maybe you know that's. As a child, that's great, you know, because you, you know you you will need a happy ending as a child, don't you? But um, <laughs> but I guess we can cope with less happy endings as we get older. I was thinking that there's so much literature around now, which is much obviously is, is kind of realism, or it's um, and it's about real lives and real people. Um, but I think there was less of that when I was growing up, to be honest. That there wasn't. It was much more limited. The range. Well, it's interesting with the fairy tale thing because the, they're stories, I guess, that were 
all really familiar with, especially like the famous ones. But I don't think I ever actually read a fairy tale as a child, like as in sat down and read one. It was just stories you were kind of aware of. So I guess the thing that really got me as a child was reading The Hobbit for the first time, which I would almost think of. I know it's a fantasy, but it's very much got a fairy tale sort of vibe about it. it feels within that world. And that was something that really kind of stuck with me and probably was one of the first books I read that I I really loved and kind of yeah no it's yeah it's definitely got the fairy tale vibe I I think I, I did try reading it when I was younger and I, I found it was too long I'm not I wasn't very good at long books I like nice short <laughs> yeah short... it was the same Ellen I liked little short stories <laughs> oh, I didn't have much stamina uh when I was younger I remember when I read The Hobbit when I was, I think we read it at school actually, I would have been about maybe nine or ten or something like that. And then I'd heard about this book, The Lord of the Rings, that was kind of like the follow-up to it, but sort of the adult version. And I was like, I'd love to read that. That sounds great. And my teacher was like, it might be a bit bit long and a bit advanced. And I was like, no, I'm going to read it. Don't don't tell me what I can and can't do. So I I went and actually read The Lord of the Rings at about 10 or 11, um, but it took me me forever. (laughs) He's still doing it. Yes, that's still on it. <laughs> but you didn't give up. No, yeah. I didn't. But it took me a long time. I think there's points in that where I was like, oh, maybe I should have listened to my teacher. Maybe this is a bit a bit much. But yeah, that, that whole kind of, that fantasy world that opens up there, but the parallels it has with the real world and the kind of moral stuff you can explore, the same as fairy tales, I guess. It's very, it's very appealing to a young mind, especially, well, I say young mind, an adult mind as well, because I think that them formative experiences you have the first few books you read they really do stick with you and i i love reading sci-fi and fantasy to this day it's probably my favorite thing to do and you think well if i'd been given a different book at school maybe would <laughs> would it have gone in a completely different direction well it's about enjoyment isn't it as well i think you know, a, lot, a lot of reading is, is escapism of one form or another um so to kind of to sort of ent- enter a, a wholly different world is part of the the pleasure of it I remember reading fairy tales when I was younger and I loved all the, the famous ones, but then I liked the fables as well. Was it Aesop's fables? Oh, yes, yes. And Rumpelstiltskin and the Selfish Giant. They were my favourites when I was, if I was reading that type of thing. I liked lots of different things, but I remember they were sticking with me. Yeah, those are lovely stories, yeah. And I think part of the part of the, the pleasure is, is um, being read too as well. My My mum and dad read a lot to us. And so did my aunties. And, you know, it's just that really nice feeling of sitting with your, sitting with your, an adult with kind of one-to-one and having that, that kind of cosy, intimate time of sharing a story together. It's lovely. I had that. And then my dad made up stories a lot as well. So you said we had like these set characters that went on different adventures every night. And then I've done that myself with my children and I've read every night to them from them being well born really right right through till they don't want me to anymore which is now then i guess of course all the fairy tales that we're talking about they would have started with just yeah. someone sat around a fire perhaps and just making it up for the kids just to keep them entertained and slipping a bit of like life advice in there and just them ones of i guess they were so good they got passed on and then they've ended up being written down um but it's it's the exact same thing really isn't it and i think in a funny way, what has also been interesting for me about the Big Malarkey is how many authors have said that they got their ideas for their their books. 
either from telling them to their own children or from stories that they made up when they were little. I mean, like, like for example, Julian Clary and the Bowles. He used to make up stories about the people who lived next door, sort of imagine that they were, they were animals of some kind. And that was when he was about seven. And that was the sort of first seed of what then became a fantastically popular series of comic books called The, the Bowles. They were actually a family of hyenas. Very funny books. <laughs> Nobody knows they are hyenas, um, who live, among, live amongst everyone in plain sight. And uh, everyone thinks they're just incredibly noisy and a bit hairy. Um, but they are in fact hyenas, and it's very funny. But he, his childish imagination was was the source of that, was the kind of the beginnings of what then became a, a, an adult book. So, I think it's it's very easy to sort of see childhood as a kind of separate thing that happened to you a while ago, and then and then you grew up, and you know the world changed. But actually, the, the sort of thread, the threads go, and the roots go away. You know, they they carry on. You know, we're connected to our our child people we were as children very strongly I think and uh, always trying to remember that <laughs> it's not, it's not too hard to remember <laughs> so without too much time to think then Ellen what is your all time favourite book film and piece of oh, music <laughs> I love how this always throws people This is I like this book they always look to the ceiling as well it's such a hard question that is such a hard question. Well, I really like the first movement of Beethoven's Emperor Piano Concerto because it's a brilliant one for waking up in the morning because it's really, really sort of big, long scales and arpeggios up and down the piano and great, yeah, great tune and full of energy and it's it's uh, it's a lovely it's a lovely pick me up. Terms of a book, Lordy Lord. One of my favourite books is The Woodlanders, Thomas Hardy, um, which is just such a beautiful evocation of a, a world of cider makers and um, sort of rural England of the turn of the century. Fantastic characters and a very, very sad and beautiful ending. So that's a, that's a really good one to kind of sail away with. And what's the last one, a favourite film? Gladiator. There you go. Oh. Oh, I didn't think you'd say Gladiator, Alan. No, that was an interesting choice. Why Gladiator? All the hunky men. <laughs> Got lots of nice hunky men. Plus, all fighting. <laughs> yeah, a bit, a bit of blood and guts. You know, that's always helps, doesn't it? Peps things up a bit. But it's, I mean, it's, it's just epic, isn't it? It's it's an epic story. Thanks for listening. We're now available on all the major podcast platforms. Just search for Hull Libraries. So if you enjoyed this podcast, you can get all the latest episodes as soon as they're out. In the meantime, if you want to check out any of the services at Hull Libraries, please go to our website, hcandl.co.uk forward slash libraries. Or we also have channels on all the social medias, including Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening and see you next time.